Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. My name is Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I am your other, oh, you didn't even say host, whatever. I'm your <laughs> co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma, causing problems yet again. Been a while yeah. since I've been so dramatic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just straight off the bat, causing problems. <laughs> I'm keeping the intro. I, uh, I, you know. I threw you off. Gotta. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's good. You know, we gotta change things up sometimes. Keep it keep interesting. it interesting. Yes. Yep. Uh, so I I came up. I do have a question this week mm. for our lady of the week. All right. Uh, are you ready? Yeah, hit me. Okay. Um, so while we are all waiting for our vaccines, do you know who else was needing vaccinations in the 1950s? Uh, people with polio? Yes, but uh, non-human oh. entities. Oh, the... um. Is it the Tasmanian devils with cancer? Ooh, that would be good. No, no you're n- you're never gonna get this. I don't think. Not it's not no judgment on Is you. Is it a dog vaccine? It's just very. No, it's um, ducks. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> Do we vaccinate ducks? We vaccinate ducks. Wild ducks or farm ducks? Farm ducks. Okay. Okay. I was like, I don't think we can um, vaccinate wild animals. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Okay. I'm uh, very interested. You've piqued my curiosity. Have I peekinged oh, your gosh. interest? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry <laughs> that I did that. Uh, don't apologize. It's amazing. Okay. Great, great. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the Duchess of Duck Disease, so coined by myself. Okay. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Duchess. It just sounds nice, the Duchess of Duck Disease. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um. It kind of sounds (laughs) like she has duck disease. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I don't... The Duchess of Duck Vaccines? I don't know. It's, well, it just doesn't, doesn't sound as good. Like, the Queen of Carbon is, like, cool as that. <laughs> <laughs> Duchess of Duck Disease doesn't sound badass. Uh, it sounds... Um, uh, I don't know. What about the Princess of Poultry Plagues? Uh, that's worse, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Like, she causes the plagues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll, um, I like the Duchess of Duck Disease. I Like, I think we should stick you. with it. I think it's a beautiful thing to call someone. <laughs> <laughs> thank 
you. I tried so hard. Um, okay. Uh-huh. Well, you've crushed my soul, no. but I will keep going. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're right. Um, okay, so the Duchess of Duck Disease is Jessie Isabel Price. Okay. Or Dr. Jessie Isabel Price. Okay, okay. I'm ready. Alright. Okay, you ready to hear about the Duchess? Yes. Okay, great. So Jessie Isabella. Oh, we could call Price. her Triple D. Sorry. The Duchess of Duck I think Disease. Triple D All right. no. is too close to double D. Okay. And I want to avoid. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. I get it. I got good good thinking. We'll keep thinking. <laughs> so Jesse Isabel Price was born January 1st, 1930 in Montrose, Pennsylvania. Okay. She was raised by her single mother, Teresa Price, and they had uh, difficult financial circumstances kind of throughout her childhood, you know, being a, a single parent household. She went to Montrose High School, and there Jessie was the only African-American in her class and was only one of two African – well, two to three. There's debate. I saw differing uh, numbers in different sources, but two to three African-Americans in her entire school when she was attending. Wow. So it was very white. Yeah. And though they had financial difficulties throughout her childhood, her mother – truly emphasized education and really kind of made it possible for Jesse to focus on schooling. Um, Good. So that's great. Yeah. So Jesse was accepted to Cornell University after graduating high school and her and her mother moved to Ithaca where Jesse took an additional year of high school because she was really concerned that she like wouldn't be up, up to snuff Uh, when she got to Cornell. So they, like, moved to Ithaca, and then she took another year uh, of high school and, like, deferred enrollment. And so she took, like, French and German and advanced English and advanced maths, I think just to, like, make herself feel like, you know, maybe maybe her school wasn't as good, uh, and she knew that, but so she wanted to, like, have a great baseline before she started college. Sure. But the the added benefit of this was that she was then a resident of of New York. And so because of her really high grades and her resident status, her tuition was free for Cornell. Oh, that's great. So good thinking. Yeah, smart. So her and her mother had moved to upstate New York. So she li- – I think – During college, she lived with her mother, um, which also, you know, saves a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Price gained a Bachelor of Science in the College of Agriculture in 1953 from Cornell. And she had wanted to be a physician, but medical school costs were prohibitory to her. She knew she just couldn't afford to go to it. So she went more of the veterinary um, biological sciences route. Okay. Not a bad route, you know. It's no still impressive. I like it. Not everyone has to be a doctor, you know. It's, exactly. Yeah. You don't only have to vaccinate humans, right? Uh, so, can still get your vaccination on, as we will learn. Yeah. 
So her undergraduate mentor, Dorsey Bruner, who is a bacteriologist studying infectious diseases of domestic animals, he really encouraged her to go to graduate school. He was like, you're great. That's great. Go forth and do it. Uh, however, at the time, Jesse did not have the money to do so. I'm not sure if they had to pay for grad school or it was just, you know, you don't get paid very much. And so it's, unless you have money on your own, it you can't really have a livable wage. I'm not sure what the situation was. Yeah. But, I feel like um, it's different. It's I'm trying to think of, like, other people you talked about. And it seems to just be different for everyone. Like, some universities yeah. would provide a stipend if they, like, were teaching at the same time. But there definitely wasn't that, like, teaching assistant system in place that they're kind of mm-hmm. is, there wasn't a guaranteed funding yeah that's like pretty widely accepted now as like a way to pay graduate students or yeah and there was no like guaranteed stipend from what i remember yeah. kind of reading about everyone's different stories yeah But just because she didn't have the money at the time, that didn't discourage Jessie. So instead, she worked for three years as a lab tech in the poultry disease research farm at the veterinary college at Cornell to save up money for grad school. I can't believe there was a whole poultry disease research farm. I mean, these ag schools like UGA has... Poultry, a poultry science right. building behind our building, mm-hmm. like an entire poultry science building. And then they also have a poultry farm outside of town. Yeah. Like, we're all about the poultry. <laughs> oh, uh, we're all about the poultry. <laughs> UGA, renowned for its poultry. That makes sense. Anyways. When you've got a bunch of animals, like, living... In crowded quarters, I'm sure, like, a disease, one if one gets sick, they can all die, which is devastating yep. to a farmer. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so she spent three years working as a lab tech and then um, supervised by Dorsey Bruner, again, who she had, uh, who was her mentor in undergrad. Yeah. She was able to work as a research assistant from 1956 to 1959. Uh, while she was getting her master's and then later her doctorate. So there was, I think they they eventually did find money to pay so that she could make money while also getting her degree. Okay, good, nice. Yeah. So her master's thesis was entitled Morphological and Cultural Studies of Pleuronomonia-like Organisms and Their Variants Associated with Chickens. So she did her master's on... Like, pneumonia-like diseases affecting chickens. Yeah. Okay. And the, like, the microbiology and bacteriology, like, aspects of that. So trying to culture these diseases. Yeah. Then, so, after her master's, this Long Island new duck disease. (laughs) Long um, Island. Was... Yeah, long, so the Long Island new duck disease was becoming a really big problem for farmers. So... It was. It is an effect, infectious disease affecting ducklings that has this really high mortality rate, uh, and it can cause up to seventy five percent mortality in some populations wow. of ducklings. So, really big problem if you're a duck farmer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
1956, the U.S. Department of Agriculture called the new duck disease the, quote, most important disease problem in the duck industry. Wow. And it caused an estimated $250,000 in annual losses for the duck industry on Long Island alone, which was the biggest, like, producer of. Yeah. Did you know that Long Island was the biggest producer of ducks? I did not, but I sort of assumed that's where the disease was, at least, because of the name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, I had no idea they had so many duck farms on Long Island. They got so much duck. So, uh, you know, if you think about a whole duck industry, 250000 doesn't necessarily seem a lot, but that was in the 50s, and so that's actually equivalent to about $2 million in annual losses for the duck farmers every year because of the new duck disease. So a very big problem. Mm -hmm. Because of this, for her her doctoral dissertation, Price isolated and replicated the bacterium Pasteurella natty pestifer. I'm just going to call it Pasteurella. (laughs) species causing the new duck disease uh and she isolated them from white peking ducks okay wait this required her to monitor the ducklings for disease symptoms then autopsy them and take samples to try and isolate the disease wow her dissertation was then published by cornell university in 1959 and published afterwards in the journal of avian diseases And after receiving her PhD, Price joined the Cornell Duck Research Laboratory as a research specialist out at Long Island and moved there in 1977. So the Duck Research Lab is out on Long Island where all the ducks are. Must just be a prime duck temperatures or something on Long Island. And it's surrounded by water. So I wonder if you can, like, make channels and use... Well, but that's salt water. I don't know. They they just love Long Island. <laughs> Can you blame I them? I wonder if there's still a lot of duck farms on Long Island. I don't know. Hmm. It's a booming duck business, yeah, maybe. Yeah. During this time, she taught at nearby Long Island University as an adjunct professor from 1963 to 1969. Yeah. And then at Southampton College of Long Island University between 1969 and 1976. So she never was a professor at Cornell. She was always a, like, research scientist. Right, right. At the Duck Research Lab, Price worked on developing a vaccine for Pasteurella. And in 1964, Ebony Magazine published an extensive photo essay on Price and her work. Wow. Showing pictures of her work. Oh, yeah, I'll have a link to it. But it. <laughs> so they showed pictures of her working on the vaccine in the duck lab and on the farm. And there's just lots of pictures of her, like with a, pa- uh, you know, notepad surrounded by ducklings on this farm. <laughs> or like. That's amazing. In the lab. And there's just like a live duckling, like <laughs> whose head's popping out of like. A tub. Oh. Um, <laughs> like duck heads? I mean, there's also a lot of pictures of her autopsying them. Wow. But that's cool. I love, like... Yeah. I love stuff like that. That's just, mm-hmm. like, here is what this person actually does every day. <laughs> yep. 
So in this article, she also describes the four miles she had to travel between the research farm where the ducks were and the lab. So. Oh, boy. I don't know if she had to walk between them. With a bunch of ducks. Like if she's taking ducks back to the lab. Because four miles, if you have a car, doesn't seem very bad. But I think she just had to like. But even just a car Walk the distance from the farms. I don't know. I'm imagining her with either a car full of ducks, a bike basket <laughs> full of ducks, a bucket she's carrying full of ducks, like, or just mm-hmm. her hand around a bunch of duck necks walking four miles. <laughs> like some ways she's just like slung over her back. A bunch of ducks. Yeah. <sighs> she does not uh divulge her her duck method of traveling secrets yeah, her duck in this article transportation methods <laughs> yeah because if she's got him in the lab she's got to get him there somehow i know somehow anyway i'm sure she like i'm sure she could probably at least borrow a car to transfer them in cages but i'm just imagining her alone like with just a bunch of free Roman ducks <laughs> <laughs> trying to get him back to the lab. Yeah, just hurting them, maybe. Maybe she imprints like on them. Sheep. Like, uh, what's his face and his geese? <laughs> and mm-hmm. they just follow her <laughs> and think <laughs> she's their mom until she cuts their heads off. Yep. Maybe. That's our Duchess. That's our Duchess of Duck Disease. Uh, So uh, for this work that she was doing, she mixed vaccinated and unvaccinated ducklings uh, and conducted like daily autopsies to determine the efficacy of the vaccine that she had created. Nice. And by 1974, she had developed an injectable vaccine that was commercially produced for, like, duck farmers. And she was also working on an oral vaccine to make it easier. Right. And it wasn't just ducks that she helped. Turkey farmers also used her vaccine to maintain their own healthy populations. Wow. Imagine. Of of turkeys, not of turkey farmers. (laughs) The turkey farmers are just like, I'm a turkey, injecting <laughs> them. <laughs> uh, that would be hard, though. I'm a mat- like, I don't know how big a single duck farm is, because I can't, I don't, I can't imagine them ever being quite as many ducks as you see with, like, chicken farming, just because chickens are so mm-hmm. much more popular. But even yeah. just trying to corral... 30 ducks to inject all of them would be tough. So I could see why an oral vaccine would be mm-hmm. if you put could it like put it in their something. food. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Indeed. For her work, Price was awarded a National Science Foundation travel grant in 1966 Ooh. to travel to Moscow oh, for the International wow. Congress of Microbiology to present her findings. That's awesome. Yeah. Then in 1977, after working at the uh, duck disease farm for 18 years, she moved to the USGS National Wildlife Health Center in Madison, Wisconsin, to work as a research microbiologist. Wow. 
There she studied the environmental contaminants and diseases of waterfowl and other wildlife to try and reduce wildlife mortality. Oh, that's really cool. So going more like looking at kind of environmental pathogens for wild Mm -hmm. ducks. Yeah. And other waterfowl. Yeah. Cool. It was there that she discovered why certain wetlands had high cholera outbreaks. It seems to be like a mixture of like certain minerals that promote cholera growth. And then she was, and this led her to help better control avian cholera. And eventually she went on to, I believe, develop a vaccine for avian cholera. During her career, she collaborated both nationally and internationally on various wildlife diseases, including our famous pastorella um, in pheasants. Uh-huh. She also helped form treatments for bacterial infections in ducklings uh-huh. and also studied pastorella multo- multocida in snow geese and Nebraskan wetlands. Wow. I didn't even know ducks were so riddled with... These types of diseases, because I I guess I've always just heard about like worms, like ducks getting worms mm-hmm. from just because there's a lot of cool like parasite examples that involve waterfowl, yeah. um, like your snail. Well, not your mm-hmm. snail worms, but anyway, sorry, <laughs> but yeah, nobody more, knows what more I'm more about. <laughs> l- larger parasites that like maybe yeah. manipulate. <laughs> Their behavior and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's because we've got some vaccines yeah, to control true. the big the big ones. Yeah. During her career, Jessie Isabel, Isabel Price, uh, she worked on various committees for the American Society of Microbiology, including as the chair of the pre-doctoral minority fellowship uh, oh, review committee. Cool for the Committee on the Status of Minority Microbiologists and on the Committee on the Status of Women Microbiologists. Nice. Although we don't know much about Price's um, personal life, I think she lived with her mother for a very long time until her mother died. I don't know if that's when she transitioned to moving to Madison. Yeah. Um, But, like, we really don't know much about her personal life. What we do know is that she was a dog lover and a breeder. Oh, okay. And she owned a prize-winning show corgi (gasps) named Clara in the 1960s that won a bunch of uh, show ribbons. That is so – I want to, like – I want to know more. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, uh, yeah, so I think she bred corgis and then also, like, trained them for show competitions. How do you get into that? I wonder maybe if at Cornell she, like, met some mm-hmm. breeders, like, at the ag school or something and got into it That there. makes sense. Yeah. But that's so cool. Oh, my God. Corgis are so I know. So I love that cute. tidbit. Oh, my God. I know. Can you imagine them doing all, like, the jumps and I the know. spins and the runs? <laughs> So, uh, additionally, she also loved photography, music, and traveling. And Jessie Isabel Price died on November 12th, uh, 2015, in Madison, Wisconsin, um, due to dementia slash Alzheimer's. And that is the story of Jessie Isabel Price, the Duchess of Duck Disease, who created vaccines to help um, 
duck farmers. Yeah. Uh, be able to have healthy populations um, and made some really interesting, like, I think she made a lot of protocols uh, for vaccines that people use. Um, so she was really, like, well-respected and yeah. an innovator of um, infectious diseases in domesticated animals, specifically ducks. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Whenever I see a duck, I'll thank, I'll thank her. You know, she's saved the ducks. <laughs> that it's not diseased? Yeah. Thank you. Whenever I eat a duck, I'll thank her. <laughs> yeah, you Say should. Definitely when you duchess. eat a duck. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows if the, the duck farms could have crippled, been crippled yeah. by all those diseases. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, I wish there was more about her personal life. I'm really happy that there was the Ebony Magazine article because a lot of the information we have, besides her actual papers, is from that article, like anything more personal. Yeah, it's always And it was cool to see, like, her showcase. It was like, you know, a five-page article with all these pictures, and it was great. Yeah, I feel like for so long... Like nowadays, like scientists, like all scientists can kind of showcase themselves, or, um, or I I don't know. There's just a lot more like communication between scientists and the non-science world, and and anyone could showcase themselves on like social media now. But for so mm-hmm. long, there were just so few famous scientists because they were mostly just like big prize winners that I think it just I don't know all of these people still doing incredibly important work were just totally overlooked and nobody not enough people cared at the time to like interview them or reach out and say hey your life is interesting and you're doing something really important even if you're not winning a Nobel Prize for it but Mm -hmm. I do wish yeah, it's it's tough that there aren't more stories about people like Jesse. Um, yeah, but I'm- and a lot of the people that we do know, like they wrote, either people recognized how important they were at the time, which is rare, especially right. if you're like a woman and a minority. Yes. You're just not gonna you didn't get the credit you were due, even if you were doing great science. Yeah. Um, but also people who like wrote autobiographies about themselves like that's a source that we can actually go back to and determine oh wow these people really did do a lot of interesting work that we can now put in the the history books yeah i totally Um, agree but if if you don't have either of those then it's like really hard to have any information on these people yeah sometimes i also (sighs) find um like a society like Maybe the Society mm-hmm. of Microbiology or something will do a biography on someone. And I like those yeah. papers because they're it's usually a scientist that knew the person um, or was very familiar with their work because they have like mm-hmm. cited it so many times. And those articles or biographies are always nice because they're good at putting their work in context, too, for like yes. the time. 
So, and they usually have a little bit of flair of their personality because yeah. mm-hmm. they did know them in person. Yeah, yeah. I read a lot of uh, obituaries, which yes. is always like a weird, depressing, <laughs> weird, depressing thing that I do since we've started this podcast. Yeah. It's just a uh, read a lot of obituaries. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's always yeah, it's tough when when yeah, there's just not enough interviews of someone during their lifetime and mm-hmm. yeah but i still like that there was anything about her yes yeah i think that yeah this was no good. it's it's short but there was definitely enough yeah, to kind of sure. put her work in context and get a little feel for her as a person i mean the corgi thing i would love to like i know see a whole movie on that but i know <laughs> so funny so good okay that's my, so that's my story. I love it. I loved it too. All right. This is our uh <laughs> forgot what I was going to say. Okay. This is our women who work section where we give shout outs to badass ladies in science making history today. And This week, my shout-out goes to Dr. Rebecca Abergel, the lead scientist of the Heavy Element Chemistry Group at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I'm intrigued. Yes. (laughs) Again, as usual, I have chosen a topic that is way out of my (laughs) expertise, (laughs) but I'm trying my I'm gonna try my best. Um, to tell you all about how she and a team, uh, she co-led a team of 12 researchers in their efforts to take the first ever physical measurements of the element Einsteinium. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I have heard of Einsteinium. Cool, cool. I don't know where it is in the periodic table. Um, but. Well, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, you tell me. Because <laughs> I had no idea either. And I had to be like, <laughs> why is this, what is it about this element that makes it, this so um, groundbreaking? Because they mm-hmm. published this paper um, this week in Nature. So I know it's important. Nice. But, you know, it's not my field, <laughs> so I have to figure out why, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So for a little background, Einsteinium, which is element 99, was first discovered in 1952 as a component in the debris of the first hydrogen bomb test explosions. So Ugh. these were like bomb tests that they did in the um, like Midway Atoll or, or one of some Pacific islands, basically. Um, Poor Pacific islands. Yeah, where they were like, oh, the people who live here don't aren't like that important (laughs) um i don't think they bombed an island with people on it but i think these things have such wide-ranging effects that yes probably could have been predicted if they weren't exactly known um anyway Mm -hmm. but anyway they after the first bomb tests like researchers went to the sites to basically collect debris and see like oh what formed as a result of this bomb how much bomb how much radiation is there right 
And that's when they discovered a couple different elements, like, and one of them, um, sorry, including Einsteinium, which was, oh, interesting. is not a naturally occurring element, you know, as far, at least not on Earth that anyone has ever found mm-hmm. before. Um, and they were only able to detect it because of its high energy alpha decay. So it's this extremely gotcha. radioactive, silvery white metal and you can find it in the bottom strip of the periodic table with a bunch of other Uh very radioactive metals (laughs) Um, things you want to avoid at all costs yeah pretty much just avoid all of those yeah um since that time and since its discovery it's been pretty difficult to study because it doesn't naturally occur like and they were only able to get even 200 atoms of Einsteinium from that H-bomb explosion in 1952. So it's also very gotcha. hard to create. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you can't just keep H-bombing the world to study Einsteinium, right? No, it's probably... The the cost-benefit is not... Right. Uh, it's not a good <laughs> situation. Um. The half-life of the original isotope was about 20 days, which means it degrades very quickly. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't really keep it around forever to study it. Um, Though now they can make an isotope with a much longer half-life of about 300 days. Um, And now you can create it in the lab by bombarding elements like it with neutrons. So basically using okay. really high-powered technologies. Like, this is very mm-hmm. difficult to, to create. You need a ton of energy. Yeah. So, um, and even then, it's very difficult to get pure Einsteinium. You often get a mix of Einsteinium and the other elements near it in the periodic table, the a- other actinides or what they're called. And you Makes only sense. get nanograms of material from this very high-energy <sighs> process. So before now, scientists knew some things about this element, like kind of what it looks like and how much radiation it gives off. Because it's so radioactive that I think it glows even just in your like looking at it. Um, like I think you can see it <laughs> glowing. <laughs> That's a telltale sign you should walk away. Yes. Um, (laughs) It has a low melting point for its group, but its melting point is like 800 degrees Celsius, which is, you know, relative to other things. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And we know like its density, but they didn't know much about its chemical structure. Mm -hmm. So to study this element, the researchers in the study created a bunch of, and by a bunch of, it's like 200 nanograms of Einsteinium in the lab. And um, again, they couldn't create pure Einsteinium, but they could use new spectroscopy techniques to uh, visualize Einsteinium and its chemical bonds with other atoms and molecules in this basic like bunch of actinides that they created 
And doing okay. this, they were able to measure bond lengths between Einsteinium and other atoms for the first time ever. It's wild. Yeah. And this is actually, <laughs> and so this, they had a kind of loftier goals with all this Einsteinium that they'd created. But one of the problems they ran into was the COVID-19 pandemic. They created a bunch of Einsteinium, a molecule with a half-life of about a year, um, and then the pandemic hit, and they like <laughs> couldn't get back in the lab for a while to study it. So they had, you know, more things that they wanted to do with these molecules. The pandemic kind of got in the way of that. Um, but what they were able to find was still very important to understanding these very mysterious radioactive elements. And Rachel says that their study will be useful and future studies on Einsteinium are useful in the study, overall study of nuclear power production and radiopharmaceuticals. And hopefully will lead someday to the discovery of new elements that are, um, that they believe exist, but are so radioactive mm -hmm. and have such a fast decay that they're almost impossible to study. But <sighs> knowing more about Einsteinium, they can figure out how to basically bombard it with neutrons to create new elements. And so this is a, a very important step in understanding it and its relationship to similar um, elements. And so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty, it's just like, it's kind of crazy the amount of effort that goes into studying something that seems so simple, like the distance between two different types of elements in a molecule, but it's incredibly yeah. difficult. Yeah. So. I mean, I, ca I can't imagine yeah. trying to study things at that small a scale. Right. Yeah. And it's just, they had to like. Um, the article talks about all these other steps they had to take just to study, like get images of it. Like they have to keep it in these boxes because of the amount of decay. Like mm -hmm. they don't want the radiation to get to them, um, obviously, because no. it can cause cancer. And then they had to create, there was a lab. I Sorry, I can't remember which lab it was because they collaborated with a few different labs. But a lab in Southern California had to make a special device just to hold the material, which I was just like, I can't even visualize what this device would look like or why it would be necessary, but it was an essential component to the study as well. So it all like, there was a lot of people involved and it took quite a long time just to get these like seemingly simple measurements Um but that's nuclear physics for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're working with such small amounts of such right. deadly materials that just doing, like, the amount of effort that you have to put in just to make it safe to even have it in the lab yeah. is probably astronomical. Like, they basically have to create these mini hydrogen bomb reactions in a lab just <laughs> to get, like, a, the small amount of material. Which is really crazy. But they're, I mean, they're obviously like getting better and better at making those types of things. Um, but still, yeah, I was just like. Science is wild. Yeah. 
lasers and that kind of thing all just kind of blows my mind and it's way over my head usually but yeah so that's my shout well, out it makes me yeah it makes me think of just like how low tech my science is I know, right? i'm like i put a snail in a plastic cup <laughs> that i got at walmart and i look at it right and then these people are like we've created these <laughs> new arms that are in this box to do a height like a, a nuclear bomb explosion yeah. and then we like put lasers at them and it's just like su- such a different level of i mean there's different complexity of biology yeah but like in terms of if you like looked at my setup and looked at their setup yeah <laughs> they're just it's so wildly different yeah and it's a cool study too because um, the article, like the press release said a bunch of grad students and postdocs worked on this and nice. like at least half of the people who authored the study are women. So I thought it was like a really neat collaborative um, collaborative study. Yeah. Doing a That's bunch awesome. of cool high tech stuff. Yeah. Very high tech. Yeah. That's good to know. Now I know so much more than i knew before <laughs> which is always the goal yeah um yeah i i was started getting in too deep about einsteinium and then i was like this oh, is oh i'm sure much. i'm sure it's a, a a black hole of yeah yeah a deep deep pit of information <laughs> well that was wonderful i love it um I think that's that's our episode, yeah, folks, mm-hmm. fellas, ladies, everybody. If you enjoy our podcast, please, you know, interact with us in some capacity. <laughs> Either shout us out on Twitter, share it with a friend, rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I was gonna do la- a couple years ago. We did February Love, where like if you gave us a rating, we would give you. We'd send you a free sticker. Yeah, I'm down to do that again. Yeah. Let's so if it. you rate us on iTunes or give us a shout out on Twitter, um, we'll send you a sticker of your choice if we still have them in stock. Um, so please, helps us out a lot, gets new people listening to the podcast and finding us. And we also just like the interaction in these lonely COVID times. Yeah. It's nice to have some... Uh, know that people are listening. So thank you so much for for listening and tuning in. I also want to thank Artichoke for our awesome theme music, Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art, which the stickers are, uh, the art for the stickers is made by Caitlin Friesen. So if you get a sticker, you can thank her as well. Um, and as always, go, go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. <laughs> Bye.